Revelation 16 and 17. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as to not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gather the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done! Then there came flashes of lightning and rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was this quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nation collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great, the great and gave her cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held the golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes, and the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. And then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come out of the abyss and go to its destruction. 
The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are on seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, the other is not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to its destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but for who one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be called his chosen and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We think, right? That is some really hard scripture. If you're visiting with us today, we've been preaching through the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And uh, Revelation arguably is the hardest book in the Bible to understand. Or I'll say it this way, at least it has the most chapters in sequence that we have no idea what they mean. You know, people have asked me, why are we preaching such large swaths of Scripture? There's a, a, you know, as we go through the Revelation, today we're actually talking about four chapters. We just read two of them. We're talking about four chapters. And... um, There's a sophisticated reason for that and a simple reason for that. The sophisticated reason is what we've tried to do is break the book up into scenes and visions the way John would have received it from Jesus. So you may notice we're going scene by scene, vision by vision. And so that explains some of the way we've broken the book up. The simple reason, man, if we stayed much longer in the book of Revelation, would you keep coming back? I mean, frankly, if you've been around here the last few weeks, you'll know that every time I preach, it's the fourth, fourth or fifth one I've done on Revelation now, I've worn the same sweater vest every time. The reason is I just have this sense that you, you receive judgment better from a guy with a sweater vest. I don't know. You'll have to let me know. What's interesting in the book of Revelation is as you read it, even in the book in between the visions, there's uh, breaks. There's this half hour of silence at one point. There's these punctuations of worship and singing and praising going on. So even John gets a break as he receives all these visions about what's to come. So we thought this morning we'd start with a little break, a little deep breath before we jump into chapters 15 through 18. We wanted to hear and share with you what our youth group thinks about the book of Revelation and specifically the number Six, six, six. Take a look. Jones first. Sure. I have Lulu. Okay. <laughs> that was so much public. I am Gavin Copeland, and I am in sixth or seventh grade. I'm Peyton, I'm in sixth grade, sup? I am Andre Stockwell, I am a senior in high school. I have not read the whole book of the last Bible, but, or the whole, the whole, yeah, flip-flop that. Well, I haven't read that much deeply into it, but I do think it's, like, it's very cool how they relate from behind 
Okay, from very far ago, uh, they start to tell the future about what's going to happen. Um, I think it just illuminates the rest of the Bible and not clarifies it, but just brings context to a lot of other pieces. Well, I think it's kind of a prophecy about what's going to happen about life around the time that Jesus is coming back. And some stuff is a little bit scary, but it's really cool how God's gonna work. It's pretty intense, not gonna lie. <laughs> I think that it's kind of weird. It's the devil's number. Satan's number. The devil. Devil's number. The devil's number. Uh, anytime I hear it, I think. Satan. Uh, I don't really know. It's just the kids at school that say it all the time. Um, <laughs> I don't. One time I went to Comic Con and they said it there. Some people at school were joking around like 666, and then I've also heard about some news articles involving it. We were in a panel, and I guess like giving out prizes, and they're like, number 666, and no one raised their hand, and they're like, come on, Satan, and I was like, it's the devil's number. Uh, just my friend was making a lot of jokes about he wanted to be number 666 because he was the devil. He was wanted to be threatening when we played basketball together. I think I saw it written on a bathroom stall once. <laughs> now back to the wrath. <laughs> Chapters 15 through 18 speak of the end of the world. They speak of the last series of judgments called the bowl judgments that God will be using to prepare the world to bring up there, chapters 4 and 5, the great worship scene in heaven, down here where God will live with his people and everything will be fixed. It begins in verse 1 of chapter 15. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. That word sign means a write-it-down market moment of world history. Seven angels with the seven last plagues, that's the seven bowls, last because with them God's wrath is completed. That word completed means fulfilled satisfied, mission accomplished, everything achieved that God wanted achieved will be achieved by his wrath. The seventh bowl was poured out at the end of chapter 16, and we read after it's poured out, it is done. The end of the world as we know it, it is done. So let's gather this in. For this world to get to the purposes for which God had made it means getting to the end involves God's wrath and judgment. For the end of the world to finish as God wants it to finish his wrath must be filled and his judgments exercised. We think that, uh, you know, Revelation, you expect this sort of language. Here's what we don't expect. This kind of talk about wrath, God's anger, his intense feelings, it's everywhere in the scriptures. Just one soundbite from one of Jesus' sermons Listen to Jesus when he's preaching one day. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin. And all who do evil, there's the bold judgments, they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. 
I come to you with one idea that I'm going to try to persuade you to. Here it is. The last word on judgment in Revelation, symbolized by the seven bowls in chapters 15 and 16, and the demise of Babylon in chapters 17 and 18, is not the activity of a ranting, out-of-control God in need of anger management, but rather the commitment of a deeply loving and inexorably just Father who is faithful to his witnesses and mission. Are you ready? What I'd like to do is uh, what we do in our small groups each week. I'd like to make some observations on the text, chapters 15 to 18. And then, having made observations, I'd like to share what I think they mean to John's first readers and then to us. And then, observations meaning, I'd like to ask, so what? What in the world do we do with this? What's the takeaway to help us on Monday? That's where we're going this morning. Five observations on chapters 15 to 18, the last word on judgment. The first is this, and you're probably sick of hearing this, but we can never forget this when we're reading the last book of the Bible. It is apocalyptic literature. You have to keep that in mind when we read the last book of the Bible. John was a political prisoner. Roman Empire was trying to shut him up and shut the Christian movement down, and they were uh, targeting key Christian leaders, and the apostle John was one. And they put him on an island called Patmos, and they locked him in a cell. He was worshiping God one Sunday morning when in his, I don't know how it happened, you know, a, a projector in the sky or his mind blown, Jesus breaks into his world and says, here's who I am, and here's what's to come. And there's this vision that God gives John to give to the churches. Remember that in the first three chapters, as we talked about the churches in what is today modern Turkey, ancient Asia, five of them of the seven that John was the pastor of were on the edge of compromise. They were under severe uh, pressure from the Roman Empire. I mean, if you were a Christian in that day and you didn't swear allegiance to the emperor and say the emperor was God, you couldn't get into the labor union. The trade guilds would shut you down. And thus, how would you make money when you couldn't get a job? I mean, intense pressure. So some of the churches were feeling the pressure and were thinking about giving up. And so God sends this vision of Jesus and this vision of what's to come to spark the church back to life. It's the purpose of revelation. But the way he does it, this apocalyptic language, I mean, psychedelic scenes, uh, fantastic beasts, uh, amazing imaginative stuff that is revealed to John. For instance, in chapter 5, when he gets the first vision of, one of the first visions of Jesus, Jesus appears as a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. Now we know that when we meet Jesus in person, he's not a lamb and he doesn't have seven horns and seven eyes. What does this mean? It means that when we do meet Jesus, we are going to be impressed with how immensely strong he is, seven horns. And we are going to be amazed at how completely wise he is, seven eyes. And we are going to be able to see the marks of his sacrificial death on his hands and feet and the pierced side. We are going to be able to see what he experienced to become the slaughtered lamb who takes away the sins of the world. But it's that kind of language, seven horns, seven eyes, a lamb, that gets these features of Jesus accentuated so that our minds can be blown. You see... The good thing about Revelation is it blows up our imaginations. The hard thing about Revelation is that it blows up our imaginations. We're not at all sure what some of it means. But think about this. Why apocalyptic? Why couldn't God just, you know, write a letter and tell us exactly what's going to play out? When we think about what the new heavens and new earth is going to be as it comes down 
and God moves in to live with us, would you not agree that that is a completely different kind of existence that we are going to experience? How in the world would you ever describe what that's going to be like? It's mind-blowing. It would be like trying to explain green grass to a baby in the womb. And thus the need for apocalyptic literature. So Jesus wants to spark his churches. He gives them this vision of who Jesus is and what is to come. The second observation is that the last series of judgments comes from uh, chapter 15, verse 5, the worship center. It comes from the temple. After this, I looked and I saw in heaven the temple that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. So when we uh, think about the wrath and judgment of God, the last series of judgments coming to the earth, we have to keep in mind that they're coming from the temple. This is tough. But what this is saying is that part of the reason we worship God is because of his wrath and his judgment. It's who God is. It's what he does. Notice in chapter 15, verse 8, when the bowls are beginning to be, judgment porridge is being poured out, it says the glory of the Lord fills the temple and we're taken back to scenes in the Old Testament when Solomon completed the temple and God moved in his presence. There was this holy glory smoke that filled the temple and everyone had to leave. They couldn't be near God and with, they didn't have the fitness to live face to face with God because he's so holy and we're so not. And they had to leave. Or Isaiah chapter 6, when we see the heavenly temple and the creatures crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it says, his glory fills the temple. Well, the same thing happens here when God is pouring out his wrath and judgment. In other words, God's wrath and judgment are an expression of his glory. His reputation, his weight. This is also interesting. At the end of each judgment section, so we've talked about six through eight, the, um, the, the seal judgments. We've talked about the trumpet judgments in, in 11 through 13, and we've talked about now the bowl judgments. At the end of each seventh of those judgments, there's this verse that says, after this, there were flashes of lightning and rumbles of thunder. So after each judgment is finished, flashes of lightning, rumbles of thunder. For the seals, for the trumpets, and for the bowls. Here's what's cool. That same verse first appeared in Revelation when John saw the throne of God. And guess what's going on around the throne of God at all times? Flashes of thunder, rumblings of thunder. Now, I don't know if that's literal. I think the point rather and up is, what do we do when we see lightning and thunder? We go, wow, I can't do that. Awe, awful, F-U-L-L. So, get it. All of the judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, all come from the throne of God. So God's wrath and his judgment are part of his glory that fills the temple, and they're part of his throne. They are who God is and what God does. But why is he so upset? That's what I'm trying to wrestle with. Why is God so mad? Well, One pastor, he, he said this, I didn't really understand God's wrath until I had kids. Not because they were so bad, 
but because I love them so much. You see, when we see God's wrath, it's not like this live wire that's disconnected from anything and he's just upset. God is upset because his world, which he made, and his children, which he, whom he loves, are being hurt. It's interesting, back in chapter 15 and verse 5, we have this little strange uh, wording that says, tabernacle of the covenant law. In other words, the basis for all these judgments being poured out is the tabernacle of the covenant law. We read in other places that it's called the Ark of the Covenant. You may have heard that. They're still trying to find it in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, I don't know if they ever will. But that's it. And this idea of covenant law, that word law, literally means the Ten Commandments, the witness, the, the commandments that God gave on Mount Sinai. So stay with me here for a minute. What has God so upset is that he has spoken the law, but people are not listening to the law, and thus they're hurting each other. In other words, the Ten Commandments are not an imposition on our lives. They are an exposition of the way life works. God has wired the universe to run on the Ten Commandments. We live in a moral universe. God, who is holy, created the universe, spoke it into existence. Therefore, we live in a moral universe. Therefore, when we choose to go against God's morality, against his commandments... We violate the creation and we hurt ourselves. That's why God, and we talk about this a lot at Waterstone, throughout the scriptures when God says do, he means do help yourself. And when he says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. The universe made by a a holy God is a moral universe and designed to run in a certain way. And when we resist that way, there are consequences. Have you ever thought about this? Why, if our universe is just a product of random chance, naturalistic evolution, why is lying so wrong? If we're here by random chance, natural evolution, the ethic is survival of the fittest, and we should all be lying to survive. But why does lying feel so bad in our own conscience or especially if you're on the other end of it? Think of it this way. God says in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. God wrote the owner's manual on sex. Why is it that when we have sex outside of marriage that it hurts other people and, oh yeah, you could die from using sex the wrong way? Why? Because a holy God spoke a creation into existence that runs on his morality, and we resist it at our own peril. Do you know why God's upset? He's upset because people are resisting at their own peril, and people are being hurt. N.T. Wright puts it this way. The biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, and loving creator who hates, yes, hates, and hates implacably anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation, and in particular anything that does that to his image-bearing creatures. If God does not hate racial prejudice, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at child abuse, He is neither good nor loving if God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, and enslave one another. He is neither loving nor good nor wise. One of the questions in your small groups this week is this. Describe a time when you've been full of wrath. Does the time come to your mind? Full of wrath. I'll tell you mine. Uh, We lived in New England at the time. I was on my way to the church late afternoon, just driving along, breezy New England town, 20-mile-an-hour speed limit, waving at everybody. Up ahead, I see a white pickup truck coming, 
uh, towards me, and it's Josh from the youth group, 17-year-old kid. Josh, hey, Josh, I'm waving. But as soon as we start to pass, it's like one of those movies where everything goes to slow motion. And I look over, and driving Josh's truck is my son, Ethan. Oh, and did I mention he's 14 years old? I do a U-turn, he does a U-turn, and we pass again. (laughs) This time I point to the church parking lot, and we pull in, and I point to the car, and he gets in, and we go home, and Jan can tell you the rest of the story from there. Let's just say that Ethan had to wait, I don't know, a while to get his driving permit and pay the first year insurance. The punishment fit the crime. What I couldn't get over was Josh. 17-year-old, my offense to anyone who's 17 in the room. But he put my son in danger. I was really hacked off at him. As random fate would have it, I ran into him a few days later. I thought I had calmed down. But as soon as we started talking, I finally got to, Josh, what were you thinking? And it was one of those, ah, I just thought it would be fun. I'm sorry. I said, if you ever do that again, I'll. And see, I hadn't thought it through enough. I didn't know what I would do. So I just said, don't ever do it again. You see, It's one thing to be filled with wrath when someone hurts someone you love. It is another thing to dispense the judgment. And frankly, that's where it's tough for us to trust God. I mean, we can't even trust him with our finances. We want him to take care of our injuries. I mean, I think on the one hand, we're concerned that God is going to underplay the judgment, just a slap on the hand. You know, cream of wheat, God. Boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. I think on the other hand, we're very afraid that God is going to overplay the judgment. Like, you mean to tell me that if a person in this life refuses to trust Jesus, that they're going to spend the rest of their existence, if it's eternal, in a place of torment apart from God? Don't you think that's overkill? I just raised that issue to leave it hanging there because I'm not going to go any further with it. If you want to read a very interesting article on hell, grab, if you haven't done it yet, in your small group curriculum books. They're out in the information table. Just take one. And there's a very interesting article by Tim Keller on why we need hell. And that we don't understand God until we understand hell. So I want to just ask you to take one of those books and read that article. We don't have time to trace it out today. But it will help you. So apocalyptic literature, it comes from a scene of worship that is God's wrath and his judgment is is part of seeing his glory and knowing how he runs the world. Now let's jump into the bowls and I'll be brief. There are seven bowl judgments that are poured out. The first thing you notice that each of them is a reminder of the plagues of Egypt. And again, remember what God was doing with Egypt. He was not only delivering his children from slavery, but even more, what he was doing for the whole world was pointing to the gods of Egypt and say, you trust in them, they're not almighty, I'm almighty. Each plague was a put down of an Egyptian god. And in the seven bowls, he's doing the same thing. He is looking at everything we human beings trust in for security and meaning and saying, they're not God, I'm God. So the first one, for instance, is sores on the human body. We often think as human beings we're indestructible. That we're just going to live and live and live. That death is just some kind of conspiracy. It's not really going to happen. Not to me anyhow. Human health and fitness is not God. I'm God. 
I'm the Almighty. And each plague, you know, from rivers to oceans, oceans was seen as the economy, the commerce. The economy can't save you. The rivers, agriculture, drought, they, food can't save you. I mean, sky can't save you. Uh, the fifth bowl that's poured out is the beast on the throne. That refers to political systems and religious systems. Look, politics isn't going to save you. Religious practices of themselves are not going to save you. The sixth beast is about the Euphrates River drying up. Remember the greatest fear that Rome had was being invaded by the Parthian kings from the east. And if the Euphrates River dries up, that's a welcome mat. Military power won't save you. The seventh beast, the bowl's poured out in the air, which means everyone's going to breathe. And see, that's the other big difference between the bowl judgments. The seal judgments, a third of the earth, I mean a fourth of the earth was affected. So everyone else gets a chance to repent. The trumpet judgments, a third of the earth is affected. Everyone else gets to repent. But by the time we get to the end, no fractional mercy. It's over. And everyone breathes it. Anyone who's not repented. You see, the mission of God is to bring the up there, down here, and that means all evil must be uprooted and pulled out. And anyone who doesn't want to be involved will be uprooted and pulled out. Not only individuals, but chapter 17 and 18 talk about authority structures. Babylon. Babylon goes back to the Tower of Babel where they built this tower and put their name on it and said, we're doing this to make our name great. At any given time, there are two operating principles in the world. There are all those structures and authorities that want to make a name for themselves. And there's the kingdom of God, which wants to bring the new Jerusalem down. And they're competing all the time. Babylon, for John's readers, was Rome. City of Seven Hills. And as Donna read, you probably picked up all that stuff about the seven leaders, the seven emperors. Rome thought it had the best government in the history of the world and the best leaders. It'd be like choosing the five or seven American presidents that were the best. You can have the best leadership ever in the Roman Empire, but guess what? There's always an eighth beast who comes, plants seeds. Uh, in every culture, every great civilization, and uh, every civilization rises and falls. The outward attack comes from an enemy, but the reason the tree is so easily pushed over, I mean, Rome fell in one week in 410 AD, one week. The reason it's pushed over so easily is because it's rotted from the inside. Moral decay. You trust in cities, you trust in governments, you're trusting in something that's already rotting. What's interesting, you get to chapter 18. So Babylon rises, falls. Chapter 18 is the funeral service for Rome, for Babylon, for Greece, for Persia, for America. It's the funeral service. Guess who's singing at the service? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Your politicians, your business women and men, and your cruise ship directors. It's there. Read it. <laughs> People who depend on extravagance and luxury. Two scary things about the funeral service. The first is this, that Babylon is described as the mother of prostitutes. That means there's more and more and more to come. Mother of prostitutes. But what's scary to me is that metaphor, prostitute. You know, it's in Revelation, I gotta be honest, what scares me the most is not the beast. What scares me the most is not the dragon. What scares me the most is the prostitute. Prostitute is someone who uses someone to get personal pleasure. You and I, if we're honest, deep down, we know that everything we have in our lives has been given to us. Given. Our next breath, our next brain function, our next ability, skill, experience, whatever it is, you and I, if we're honest, know that it's been given to us. But yet we take it into our own hands. 
we use it to make a name for ourselves instead of using it to bring the new Jerusalem down. We wonder and flirt with this prostitute all the time. Here's an assignment. Read chapter 18 and don't see if you see America. And don't see if you see ourselves. Those are the observations. What are we to make of them? Two quick things. First, after reading the chapters, what we understand, John's readers and us understand that God's wrath and judgment are just. They are in place and well placed for two reasons. Again and again throughout these four chapters, the reason that the hammer comes down is because people have refused to acknowledge God as the Holy One. The Almighty, the one who rules our lives and every part of our lives. The reason God's wrath and judgment come are because people refuse to call God the Holy One. And that is a very serious crime. Best explanation of this I heard was from a middle school youth pastor. He was trying to get people, his kids, to understand that, you know, sin is not something we shrug at. He was trying to get his kids to understand that the essence of sin is a failure to believe, not that God exists, but that he matters. And so he told this story. He said there was a boy, he had behavioral problems. One day in school, he punched another student. He got detention. Well, in detention... He punched the teacher. He got suspended. Well, on the way home, as the school police officer was driving him home, he punched the cop. That got him in jail. After he got out of jail, he heard the president of the United States was coming to town, and he stood in line and waited, and when he could, he punched the president. That got him shot. In each instance, it's the same crime. The only difference is who he committed the crime against. A failure to acknowledge God as the Holy One, the Almighty, is the deepest, most severe crime that a human being can commit. God's justice is well placed here, not only because he's holy, but secondly, because his followers are part of his mission, the witnesses. It's interesting that in each chapter, there's a clear statement that the reason that the structures are being judged, the reason these individuals are being held accountable is for the way they've treated the people of God. Know this, that anytime you step out for Jesus and in return receive persecution, oppression, financial pressure, scorn, gossip, or death, any time for being a witness, you lose, God is watching. And God will vindicate all that you've lost. God's wrath and his judgment are well placed and meted perfectly because he is holy. And his witnesses are an important part of the mission. But the other thing I want to point out, not only are his judgments well placed, but also his judgments are responsive to repentance. So again, we've talked about it. The seals, a third, everyone else repent. The trumpets, a fourth, a third, trumpets repent. This one's total. But it's interesting, as you go through chapter 16, after each bowl, almost every bowl, it says, the reason that they're being judged is because they would not repent. They would not repent. God's judgment and wrath are always responsive to repentance. He's always looking for people just to look at him, just a glance, and he comes running to help them. But if they won't run to him, If they don't want God in their life, guess what? God will give that to them. 
There are two kinds of people in the world. Those who, this is C.S. Lewis, those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Sometimes we have this fallacy about hell. We think that people are in hell and just crying and screaming to get out. No. You don't find that anywhere in Scripture. In fact, when Jesus talks about it in a story, the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus never, or I mean the rich man, never once asked out of hell. He, in fact, is still trying to tell God what to do and to make his life better in hell. But not once does he say, get me out of here, I can't take it. No, he got what he wanted. You see, the danger is that if you don't, in this moment, decide that Jesus is your Holy One and the Almighty, you risk the end of your life or the end of your age being locked into a permanent state separate from God and not wanting anything to do with him. And that could be the most costly mistake you ever make. Will Williman is a professor of religion at Duke. He once told this story in a sermon. Early in my ministry, I served a little church in rural Georgia. One Saturday, we went to a funeral in a little country church, not of my denomination. I grew up in a big, downtown, sophisticated church. I had never been to a funeral like this one. The casket was open, and the funeral consisted of a sermon by their preacher. The preacher pounded on the pulpit and looked over at the casket, and he said, It's too late for Joe. He might have wanted to get his life together. He might have wanted to spend more time with his family. He might have wanted to do that. But he's dead now. It's too late for him. But it's not too late for you. There's still time for you. You still can decide. You're still alive. It's not too late for you. Today is the day of decision. And then the preacher, he told how a Greyhound bus had run into a funeral procession once on the way to the cemetery and that that could happen today. He said, you should decide today. Today is the day you get your life together. It's too late for old Joe, but it's not too late for you. Williman says, I was so angry at that preacher. On the way home, I told my wife, have you ever seen anything as manipulative and insensitive to that poor family? I found it disgusting. She said, I've never heard anything like that. It was manipulative. It was disgusting. It was insensitive. Worst of all, it was also true. The end of the age is coming. The end of your life is coming. Have you made up your mind about who Jesus is and what's real? You see, the takeaway, the so what, is in verse 15 of chapter 16. Watch and wear. Look, I come like a thief. This is between the sixth and seventh seal, just before the end. Jesus is going to come back. It could be any period of time in which we live. Jesus could come back. And so one of the things we need to do is to stay awake. Let revelation keep us wide awake and blowing our mind. Let me ask you this. How often does the thought cross your mind that the end of the world could come? How often does it cross your mind that Jesus is coming back? Which city are you living in? Where's your investments? What matters? Are you watching? Are you waiting for Jesus to return? If you are, you're wearing, watch and wear. The verse, you know, some read this and think we should be stockpiling beans in the basement and buying survival gear. I think that's the wrong kind of gear. I think what we should be putting on is the deeds of Jesus so that when people look at us, they see him. That's the clothes we should be wearing. Richard Wormbrand is the founder of Voice of the Martyrs. He was a prisoner in a Romanian prison and he tells about the years when he was tortured and beaten and left to starve. A young atheist was thrown into his cell one day, screaming, I hate God and leave me alone. 
Wormbrand shared his faith with him anyway. And still young Joseph would not believe. During that time, Wormbrand loved the other prisoners in the prison. He would give his food when they were hungry and he was hungry. In winter, he risked freezing to death by tearing out the lining of his coat and giving it to Joseph. One day, Joseph said to him, We've read nearly everything that Jesus said, but I wonder what he was like. I mean, what was he like to know as a man? Wormbrand thought for a moment and then replied, Years ago, when I was in room four, there was a pastor there who lived like Jesus. He gave himself away, and he loved everyone there. One day, a committed communist asked him, What was Jesus like? And in a moment of courage and great humility, this pastor in room four said, Jesus was like me. The communist said, if he was like you, then I love him. Joseph, the young atheist, looked at Wormbrand and said, if Jesus is like you, then I love him too. Watch and wear the clothes of Jesus. Let's close in prayer the sermon. Before we sing, would you pray with me? This is a guided prayer. The word cup or bowl is also the word cup in the Greek. And we are reminded that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath and judgment for us. Jesus went to hell for us so that we wouldn't have to go. Jesus was separated from the Father so that we would never be separated from him. Jesus drank the cup. And because he drank the cup, we don't have to. We can be saved. And all that we need to do in this moment is to say, Jesus, I receive what you've done for me. You died on the cross for my sins. You were raised to life for my future. I give my life and all that I am to you. Jesus drank the cup so that we don't have to drink it. Have you received him? It's as simple as just saying, Jesus, save me. Save me. I'm yours. The sinner's prayer is this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Say it with me again quietly in your heart to Jesus. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner.